getting Christ Central up and going. Uh, we've been down in Corvallis since last spring in complete parachute scratch plant. And it's been amazing. We started in Advent doing weekly worship, and we think we have enough momentum to keep that. So um, honestly, thank you. It's been such an encouragement for me to be able to meet with Brian, Joe, and Eric and get some ghost peppers and sausages and feel really bad the next day. And uh, it's just been good. So uh, what we're going to do today is what we've been doing as a community is we've been exploring the story of God. Because what this Bible tells us is this amazing story from creation to new creation via redemption. And in this massive story, we sort of see three different threads and three different storylines together. We see this story about us and our life with God, sort of the story of salvation. We see the storyline about us with one another, this story of community. And then we also see this other storyline, this storyline uh, of mission, our relationship with the world. And what's unique is that all three of these storylines sort of fit very nicely under this uh, umbrella topic of worship. Because ultimately we are made to be worshipers. And it's even at this weekly act where all three of these storylines converge together. Where we come together as a community. Where we celebrate the goodness of God's salvation in, in his son, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we are bearing witness to this world about the hope that is in the midst of the brokenness of it. And what we've been doing is just starting in Genesis, and we're going to plow all the way through Revelation, because I think I'm young and ambitious enough to try it. Um, so what where we're at now is uh, just Genesis 3. Uh, we're going to see really where the, where the story unravels, where everything goes sideways, where ultimately our worship is disordered, the disordering of our worship. So will you read with me? And I'm going to do an audible. We're actually going to read two more verses. So we'll do Genesis 3, verses 1 through 9. Listen, this is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the, free that is, uh, of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text. Um, it is a challenging text, and there is so much that could be said and dealt with in this, uh, with this passage that we just honestly don't have time with. But I pray, Lord, that we will encounter you through your word, that we can't help but walk away as a transformed people. Now, through this text, we could even see you more clearly and walk away and adore you more in our lives, in our families, in 
our marriages and our communities and in our churches and ultimately in this world. And we pray these things in your most precious name. Amen. Now, as we consider this text, I want us to look at it under three different headings. First of all, scorning the object of our worship, changing the object of our worship, and the consequences of disordering or displacing our worship. The scorn, changing, and the consequences of this. Now, when we approach this text, especially to our modern, civilized uh, sort of posture we have, it's easy to just view this as a very dated text, that it's very antiquated, and that it's primitive. And even some scholars that I've read, more progressive ones, just say, what this is, is this is just a text used to explain the fear of snakes, or how manipulative women can be, or how to manipulate women. And that this is just merely sort of a sociological explanation of these oppressive, hierarchical cultures of the old time. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that if we truly stop and consider this text and consider this narrative and hear what it has to say to us, I think it reveals a tremendous, a tremendous amount about ourselves, about our world, and ultimately about God. And what's amazing is that when we see the unraveling and the disordering of our world, it doesn't begin with a high and lofty argument. What does it begin with? It begins with a scorn. And we see that with the challenge here. The challenge of the scorn, the serpent saying to the woman, did God actually say? Does he really say that? And we sort of see this manifest all the time, even in our own culture, that we like to scorn God, jeer at him, sneer at him. And it's tough, because in a way, if we're going to be totally honest, this could actually be more devastating um, because it's the influence of an atmosphere that we're at. It's not the power of an argument. It's, it's an assertion rather than an argument. It's not it's some powerful, logical argument that we're faced with. It's a sneer. It's a scoff. It's a scorn. And we deal with this all the time. And being in Corvallis and at OSU, I see this all the time with my students. And I'm convinced that this is probably one of the biggest reasons that we have so many college students leave the faith. Because how are they supposed to feel when they enter into this prestigious academic environment and they're told that it's no longer intellectually viable, no longer intellectually honest, no longer intellectually even possible to believe these things? Because we're too advanced for that. We're too bright. We're too reflective. And what's the result? Well, we see it all the time. These students who once had this beautiful faith that was a source of the hope, comfort, joy, security, now becomes a place of embarrassment for them, of alienation, and it's humiliating. You see this in our universities. We also experience it in our communities. We see it in our neighborhoods. And for some of us that don't have believing members in our family, we experience there with our families. And the hard part is, is that it's not just strong, urgent atheists that do this. People who are just indifferent do it too. Uh, I was reading this book, Unapologetic, and this is what the author says. He says, the really painful message we receive is that we're embarrassing. For most people who aren't new atheists or old atheists and have no passion invested in the subject, either negative or positive, believers aren't weird because they're wicked. We're weird because we're inexplicable. Because when, there's really no necessity for it, for anyone sensible. 
We've committed ourselves to a sort of set of awkward and absurd attitudes which obtrude and which struck against the background of our modern life. And not in some important or respect-worthy or principled way either, more of in a way that some particularly stylist piece of dressing does that makes an onlooker wince and look away and wonder if some degree of cerebral deficiency is involved. And I think that's, that's the truth. I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, one of the things that makes it so hard and so challenging to be a Christian is that we just look embarrassing to so much of the, the secular world out there. And it's hard for us to deal with that. It's a very painful thing because we're just told that it's completely unnecessary. But what we see that begins with a scorn develops into something else. The scorn develops into a lie. And it's interesting because what does the snake do? He doesn't argue against the existence of God. He doesn't argue against the holiness of God. He doesn't even argue against the majesty of God. He argues against the goodness of God. Let's read verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The snake is, in effect, saying what you really need to know is that God is keeping you down. His arbitrary rules and obligations are actually robbing you of life, not enhancing it. it, And that at the end of the day, he is restraining your potential, your happiness, and your joy. And the result is that if we embrace this lie, if we entertain the scorn, it's just going to lead to a complete distrust of God and of his goodness and of who he is and what he has done for us. And that at the end of the day, we will start believing these lies. Because if the trust is not there, we can always find ways to intellectually support that. He's not worthy of our trust. He doesn't have uh, our best interest at hand. And then who is God to tell us that we shouldn't spend money on what we want? Who is God to tell us that we shouldn't sleep with that person? Who is God to tell us that we shouldn't spend all the time on ourselves? And the reality is, is that both of these attitudes, this scorn and this lie, is at the heart of every sin. It is truly sort of that sin behind the sin. Because we think that God is just arbitrarily keeping us from something. But I think if we actually take a step back, and actually consider maybe why God gave us this prohibition and in the garden and what he was trying to communicate, actually tells us something beautiful about himself. Because it's kind of hard. I mean, when we read the previous passage and understand that the prohibition is just not to eat this fruit, I mean, it's kind of minor compared to some of the other Ten Commandments. He's not saying don't kill people, don't rob them or anything. He's just saying don't eat some fruit. I mean, my kids would love this right now. Um, but, but why does he do this? Why doesn't he actually explain it to him? What is the logic behind this? Well, you could imagine that if God said to Adam and Eve, well, don't do this because the second that you eat of it, it's going to plunge this world into a shadow of sin and death and cause centuries of misery, death, pain, and suffering for you, your offspring, and everyone else. They're just looking, okay, never mind then. Um, 
And the reason is, is because, and I like how this one pastor says it, that he doesn't give him an explanation because all it would result in is just a cost-benefit analysis. And that's not obedience. That's self-interest. And what God is saying to them in this prohibition is he's saying, my children, I am God. Your life, your world is a gift. And I want you to live like that, and that it is a gift, and that I want you to live by my power, not your possession to do what you want. I want you to live by faith and trust, and that you could either choose to treat me as God and treat this world like it is a gift, or you could put yourself in the place of God and act like this life is your own. God didn't give them a reason and an explanation because he wants us to live in dependent trust on him and embrace his goodness, his benevolence, and his love. But how does this unfold? The reality is, is that what began as a lie, or began as a scorn, developed into a lie. And it led this woman to change the object of her worship. And this is interesting, because if the serpent could be sort of labeled as the first relativist in Scripture, we could almost look at the woman and say that she's the first legalist of Scripture. And we see it first in how she changes the words of God in verses 2 to 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What she does is she does three things to twist the words of God in the previous passage. The first thing she does is she actually minimizes their privilege by merely saying, We may eat rather than embracing the full culinary bounty of the garden itself. What does God say to him in the previous passage? You may eat freely of every tree in there. They had this amazing bounty before them that they were called to partake in, delight in, and take joy in. And for them, we may eat of any tree, not freely. Secondly, she minimizes the judgment by saying, lest you die, whereas God explicitly said, you shall surely die. And the third thing that she does is she actually maximizes the prohibition by saying, you shall not even touch it. Whereas God said, you shall not eat of it. And by embracing the scorn and lies, by changing the words of God, she ultimately is changing the direction of worship in her heart. Because the claim of the Bible and the testimony of the Christian church is not that we don't worship, but that we do worship. Because when we're talking about worship, we are talking about the things that we love, the things we adore, and the things that we hold as ultimate. It's not that we don't worship. The only choice we have is what we do worship. And I love this quote here by David Wallace Foster. I use it all the time, so if I've said it before, I apologize, but it's good enough. You should probably hear it again. Um, This is what he says, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type, whether it be Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or some type of ethical principles, is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. 
Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, cliches, and parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping in the truth of our daily consciousness. Because if you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will never, ever feel like you have enough power. And then you will feel numb to others out of your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are our default setting. It's what we always default to. And this is because when we were made in the image of God, we were made with that same type of outpouring of love that you see within the divine community itself. That for all eternity, God existed in this beautiful community and outpouring of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we were made in that image, we were given that same type of outpouring of love too. And in this way, we have this complete love that needs to always be pouring out. It's almost like we have this fire hose that is just pouring out and that you cannot stop regardless of how hard you try. And the only choice you have is where you point that. And that's why um, I, I think Martin Luther's right when he says we can't break any of the Ten Commandments without breaking the first one. The only way we sin is by, by misplacing our worship, disordering it. And we see this manifest in Eve, that after embracing the scorn, entertaining the lie, the reality of changing our worship and changing our affection is easy. We see that in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she partook of it. Now, when we change our affection, when we change our adoration, when we change our heart and our worship from God to creation, just like Eve did here, we will lead to a place of bitterness, pain, misery. Ultimately, these things do not make us more human, they make us less human. Now, rather than keeping God at the center and knowing what is good and evil, we see the woman decide that she would define what is good and evil. And God's commands are not good, and that ultimately his intention with us are evil. Is knowledge bad, though? No. But how we acquire knowledge matters, and it mattered to God. We see all throughout Scripture that the ends never justify the means, but the ends do regulate them, and I think that's important. But let's consider these consequences. What happened after she displaced her worship? What happened after she disordered her heart and affections? What happened next? What are the consequences of it? We see it in verses 7 through 9, which if you want to look at three verses that really tell the history of humanity, it's these ones. That in the midst of our shame, we try to cover it. We turn inward, and we are trying and seeking things that, will, that we believe will give us dignity, comfort, security, and satisfaction. But as we know, these things are rarely effective. We are seeking ineffective remedies for really symptomatic um, issues that are not dealing with the root of the problem, and that's sin. That's worship. That's our relationship with God. 
And we see how this manifests, not only in shame turning us inward, we see then the deterioration of relationships. And this is really in the next passage, where rather than having this beautiful place of intimacy, joy, and delight with one another, we turn on one another and we pull away from one another. But then when we do start coming together again, how do we do it? In strife, violence, tension, friction. We experience that. We experience how that even extends into our relationship with creation, where we toil and labor and languish under things where we don't feel like we experience fruit. But it's not just sort of this shame thing that we deal with and this tension and uh, deterioration of relationships. What we see emerge here is a new direction of life. Because we know that in the midst of this, in the wake of this sin, in the wake of this guilt, in the wake of what is happening here, we see a promise emerge that in the brokenness of this world, God would do something. And that whereas, God, uh, whereas man and the woman wrestled with obedience in the bounty of this garden, of light, of life and intimacy, we know of another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where we see Jesus wrestling with obedience to the Father, except in darkness. And he languished so much that he sweated drops of blood. And whereas the man and the woman in their disobedience forfeited their life, Jesus' obedience would actually cost him his life. That Jesus himself would endure the scorns and lies and mocking from soldiers, from Jews, from this world, and ultimately from us, to show humanity, us, you, the true degree of God's love, goodness, and benevolence. That in the midst of humanity asserting itself and putting itself where God deserved to be, Jesus accepted the penalties that truly belonged to us alone. That rather than hiding from us in disgust at what we did, we see a God who comes near to us, identifies with us so much so that he endures the shame that we deserve on the cross so that we could receive the dignity and righteousness that is possible by living in faith and trust. And that's what Jesus did perfectly. That the call in the midst of our shame, where are you? He actually seeks us out and finds us. That if you look at the gospel... And if you really want to start doing cost-benefit analysis, we should be broken at his response to our disobedience. And he did this to restore him back to himself, back to one another, and back to the world. Because what is the cost-benefit analysis? It cost Jesus everything so that we could receive that benefit of his perfect love, life, righteousness, and grace. And I think that it's important that we keep this picture in our head because ultimately we worship our way into idolatry and the only way out of idolatry is worship. It's only by having that exalted picture of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on our behalf that it could truly stir our emotions, adoration, and affections back to the God who loves us, created us, and ultimately redeems us. And that's why when we consider the disorder of worship and still deal with the consequences of it today, we know that we will not be enslaved to that because Jesus freed us from that. And that is good hope. And I hope that we will go in light of that hope and love of the gospel. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could just see this text and see ourselves in it, see the brokenness of the world, see the pain of living in this broken world, and know that 
this is not the end of the story. This is the beginning, and it is pointing to a beautiful thing about what you would do to bring us back to yourself, to redeem us, to save us. And now we could worship with a pure heart, with right motives, right adoration, and right affection, and we thank you for that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.